Good morning, everyone. My name's Peter Milliken. If we haven't met, I'm one of the pastors here. And um, I'm the second string preacher, so when, you know, the, the top dog's away, I get uh, thrown a bone here and there. And so, normally holidays, um, Pete's away, kicking his feet up on the beach, having a margarita somewhere. And um, I'm doing the hard yards, so... It's a hard life, but um, someone's got to do it, you know. I want to uh, start this morning by talking about story, because uh, we all love a good story, right? We are, we're obsessed with stories, actually. We love to hear them, we love to listen to them, we love to watch them on screen. Um, the best ones we listen to, watch over and over and over, even though we know exactly what's going to happen and how it's going to play out, because we love story. There is something about story that we're drawn to, and uh, I was hanging out with some of my oldest friends this last weekend, and we've been friends since primary school, so you know, a lot of stories have uh, played out in our lives, and every time that we get together, which is not that often, but probably once every six months, what do we do? We tell the same stories from school over and over and over again. And we all know the stories we're going to tell, but we still think they're just as funny and we laugh just as hard over and over and over because we love stories. Even when we know the stories, sometimes we even like them better when we know them and we've retold them over and over. And maybe you can think of an example in your family or your friends or, you know, maybe even here at the church of stories that just get retold over and over every time you get together with those people. <clears throat> so let me tell you one of those stories really quickly. We had just finished high school. We thought we were the kings of the world, right? And we could do whatever we wanted. And uh, we went through this phase where we would go on missions, we would call them, right? And we would go and prank people. And um, sometimes we, these were harmless, sometimes not as harmless. And uh, anyway, one day my friend looked up at the old Westpac building downtown, you know, the really nice kind of stone building there that used to be Westpac. It's now uh, some restaurant, George Banks or something like that. Everyone know what I'm talking about? Yep, that building. That used to be Westpac Bank. And on top of that, there is now a, a glass kind of open um, restaurant. That didn't used to be there. It used to just be a flat roof. And on top of that flat roof was a flagpole. And it had the Westpac Bank flag on it. And my friend looked up at that and said, you know what would be fun? If we climbed that and got on the roof and changed the flag. And so we had this planned out. We went and got a pirate flag. And uh, one, I think it was a Thursday evening, we scaled the Westpac building at the back there. Can't do it anymore, kids, don't even try. Got onto the roof of Westpac Bank, took down the Westpac Bank flag and put up a pirate flag in its place, got down. <laughs> and we just thought it was awesome. Next day we go, we look at the Chronicle and guess what's in there? The pirate flag, the Jolly Roger Flies High was the, uh, the title underneath it. And they thought somebody was having a crack at, at the bank for raising interest rates. <laughs> Which um, none of us had a home loan then. And uh, I'll tell you what, if I had the opportunity now, I would put another flag there to indicate 
that, right? That is one of our favorite all-time stories. We tell it all the time. My family knows about it. They, tell, they told my nieces and nephews about it. And now every time they see me or they drive past that building, they point it out. That's the one that Uncle Peter climbed. And you know, you know. It's just a good story, right? And we love to tell it. Um, could have ended badly, but it didn't, thankfully. But here's the thing about stories and the personal connections with stories. All of you now know me a little bit better, maybe for worse, and I probably won't have a job going forward. But you know a little bit more about me because you heard a story about me. And the truth is, you don't really know someone if you can't tell a story about them. right? If you can't tell a story about somebody you know, you probably don't really know them all that well at all. Now, we're starting a new series coming into Christmas, and we're going to tell a story that many of you, if not all of you, are familiar with and you've heard many times before. It's not going to be necessarily new in that sense, but it is such a good story. It's such an important story because this story tells you something about God. This story tells us about how much God loves us. And that is the most important story we can know and tell and retell and be reminded of every single day. I hope and I pray that this Christmas is going to be the most significant Christmas in your life. Not because you get the present that you wanted or the, the lights displays around Toowoomba are better than, than they were previously. All those things are great. Or, or time with family has been excellent. Like I hope those are all true too. But I, I want this Christmas to be the most significant Christmas to you because the story came alive in a way that it hadn't previously. And you understand the love of God in a new way, in a in a deeper, more meaningful way than you have previously. This is the story of salvation coming to the world, to you and to me. And so we're going to, in this series, go through the Gospel of Luke and the birth narrative of Jesus Christ. So if you have your Bibles there, you can turn to Luke chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible this morning, I, I really suggest going grab one, just Honestly, you can just stand up and grab one over there. There's not gonna, it's not going to be on the screen. Right? We're going to go through the text and look at it together in person, old school. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's one over there. Please grab one. You want to be able to watch and look at what we're reading. Now, Luke's gospel starts back further than all the other gospels. In fact, he's not even going to talk specifically about Jesus' birth at the beginning. He's going to pick up the birth of John, who becomes John the Baptist's birth. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. And there's something really important that Luke is doing with this part of the story that you don't get in all the other gospel narratives. And so I think it's really important that we start there. We're just going to work our way through week by week. And we'll end up on Christmas Day at the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, all good stories start with a setting, right? It's, we were here, we were doing this, it was this time of year, this is what was going on, right? Luke does the same thing, starting in verse 5. There's a little introduction section of Luke where he's 
he, he's writing this to somebody to give them this material. And he, he's, he's telling them, hey, I'm giving you this material. I've gone and researched this. I've put this all together. And then the story starts in verse 5, which is where we're going to start this morning. And this is what it says. Luke chapter 1, verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judah. Stop there. Right, this is our first character. And if you don't understand this character, you're not going to understand the story to the way that you should, right? He, uh, Herod is, it says here, king of Judea. What do we know about Herod? Well, Herod was a power-hungry, obsessed king. He was an evil king. He was not a Jew by blood. He was an Edomite, actually, um, which you can trace their roots all the way back to Esau, right? Back in the, the Old Testament. And uh, he wasn't a Jew, but he wanted to be the king of the Jews. He wanted to rule and reign that area, right? And so he actually married a Jewish woman to give himself some credibility. It's not the only one that he married. They often married for political reasons back then. And he married a Jew as well as many other women. But one of them was a Jew so that he would have some credibility to ruling the Jewish people, right? But really what Herod did was he went to Rome and kind of sucked up to Rome pretty well because Rome is ruling at the time of this story. And Rome would go into a place, they would conquer it, and then they would leave some of their people in charge of ruling over it to make sure that there wasn't any dissensions or uprisings that could come back and challenge Rome. And so Rome decides to put Herod on the throne over Israel or Judea as it's called, right? And they declare Herod, wait for this title, King of the Jews. He's not a Jew. He's just a power-hungry, obsessed, evil king, right? And they give him a bunch of Roman troops so that he can keep the peace. And uh, he's over Judea, Samaria, Galilee, Perea, basically all of Israel. And from the time he started on the throne, He wanted to be unrivaled in his power and he was obsessed with it. He would do anything to keep his position and he'd kill anyone that even threatened a little bit to take any of his power away. So much so that he killed three of his sons and one of his wives just because they threatened potentially to take his throne away. So he wiped them out. It was said at the time that it was safer to be one of, the, one of Herod's pigs than it was to be one of his sons. Because this king killed anything that might challenge his rule or reign. So he's an evil king. He's hell-bent on ruling and controlling and doing whatever it takes to keep that position. This is a dark opening to the story. Make no mistake. And now we're going to have a contrast in the second half of the verse. There was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. So during Herod's time, there's this couple. uh, the, The man is a priest named Zechariah. He's part of the division of Abijah. We'll talk about that in a sec. He's married to Elizabeth. And she's in the line of Aaron, which is the first national priest of Israel way back in the day in Exodus. Now, if you combine Zechariah's name and Elizabeth's name, you have something very interesting. 
Zechariah means God remembers. And Elizabeth means his covenant. And so when you put this couple together, you have this combined meaning of God remembers his covenant. And I'll tell you why that's interesting, because this is the hope of Israel at the time. That God will remember his promise that he made all the way back in Genesis 3 at the fall. That there would be one who would come from Eve who would crush the head of the serpent. Do you remember that? And then a few chapters later in Genesis 12, another covenant is made to a guy called Abraham that he would be a great nation. And that he would uh, be a blessing to the Gentiles and God would bless him and have and many descendants, and the one who would come from Eve would go through Abraham's lineage. And then there's a promise, again reiterated to, to Isaac and Jacob, his sons. And then David comes along, and there's a covenant made with him that there'll be one who'll come from him, who'll reign on David's throne forever. And Israel's hope at the time is that God would remember his promises and his covenants with his people. Because things are not going to turn around for Israel because of their ability to get things sorted. If you follow any of the Old Testament and you watch how Israel goes about living, they, they are a mess, right? They are the most stiff-necked, disobedient, just hopeless nation. They can never get themselves together. They can never seem to follow what the Lord calls them to do. They can't, they can't ever manage to seem to get things sorted for a decent amount of time. And so Israel's hope is that God remembers his promise and his covenant. They are completely reliant upon God doing something. Their hope in this dark time is that God remembers. And wouldn't you know it, there is this faithful old couple. Together, they mean God remembers his covenant. Zechariah is a priest. In the Old Testament, what the priests do, and the priests are the ones who are mediating a relationship between God and his people through the sacrificial system. Right? And this is what it says in verse 6 about them. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. This is different to the way that Paul uses righteousness. Basically, this is saying they stuck to the old covenant the way that they were supposed to and offered sacrifices according to the sins that they needed to. They observed all the Lord's commands and instructions of the law. Now, let me tell you why this is significant and interesting. <clears throat> During the intertestamental period, which is what we call the time where the Old Testament finishes, right? Malachi is the last prophetic book in the Old Testament. And uh, there's this, there's this uh, time period of about 400 years between the end of Malachi and the opening of the New Testament, uh, which is where we're at this morning when... John the Baptist is coming along. About 400 years, right? And between those two periods, when we close the Old Testament, the priests are meant to be the watchdogs for truth, right? They are meant to be the ones who continue to teach the truth about the covenant 
and operate in a way that Israel was called to, right? And the priests have a very important and significant job in guarding the truth. During the intertestamental period, they had dropped the ball, right? They had compromised and trimmed their sails so much so that they might fit in and get along with Greece and Rome and their philosophy and their religion and the way that they operated. So much so that the priesthood really became irrelevant by the time you get to the New Testament. And when you read through the New Testament and through the Gospels, you don't really hear much about priests, right? You hear about Caiaphas, the high priest, ruling at the time, where they had combined. Again, this is intertestamental period where they got it wrong. They combined the idea of a king and a priest together, which they shouldn't have, right? And that's Caiaphas. You hear about him. But what other priests show up? Not many, right? Because the priests had dropped the ball when it came to their role and responsibility that God had called them to do. And they had become irrelevant. And instead, you have other groups fulfilling that role that never existed in the Old Testament, right? And so when we turn up in the New Testament, you've got these groups like the Pharisees, right? Who are all of a sudden, they're the watchdogs for truth and telling everyone what to do based on the oral tradition. You're like, where did they come from? Well, they came because there was a vacuum that the priests left behind. And the Pharisees tried to fill that. And the Sadducees and, and uh, the Zealots, right? All these groups are popping up trying to figure out how do we keep the truth and tradition and, and, and stay on the tracks. None of them had it right. But the priests had dropped the ball. Except this little couple who hadn't compromised. Who had remained faithful to the law and the sacrificial System, Zechariah and Elizabeth, and they were both walking accordingly to those laws and statutes. And you would have thought God would reward them, like give them an easy life, and they'd be blessed beyond their measure. But verse 7 says they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Why do bad things happen to good people? I don't know. I can't tell you why. All I can say is we live in a fallen world where we experience things as they're not meant to be. And bad things happen. And you will experience the effects of the fall up until the time that Christ returns. You will get sick. Your physical bodies will fail and they won't work as they should. And people will bring harm to one another. And weather events will wipe out homes and take lives. And you will all experience the fall in different ways. And the call to the believer and to you and to me is to be like Zechariah and Elizabeth. To remain faithful despite the circumstances and the suffering that you undergo. I remember asking a senior pastor at a mega church in America. He was famous, written books, blah, blah, blah. And uh, we got a Q&A with him and I just raised my hand. And I said, hey, how do you know now what success looks like? 
Like it looked like he'd done it all. And I just clearly remember him saying to me, success is being faithful. Success is being faithful. No matter what is in front of you, no matter what you've got, big, small, you be faithful with what you've got. That's the setting for our story, right? There's the background that Luke writes. Now, if this was a Disney story, which we all love Disney, right? Well, we used to love Disney. <laughs> this is how this story might, have, might be told today, if Disney got their hands on it, maybe 10 years ago. Once upon a time, there was a wicked king in a dark land. He made sure no one could challenge his authority and he ruled with an iron fist. The country in which he ruled was corrupt and the priests who were meant to uphold goodness and truth had forgotten the old ways. And they were more concerned about their own survival than allegiance to their one true God. But there was one old couple who, even though they couldn't conceive, were faithful and obedient to the old ways of doing things, the, things, the way the things were meant to be. A couple of old Jedis hanging out in Tatooine under the shadows, unknown, unassuming. They're from the old republic that no one really paid attention to anymore or thought anything significant might happen to them. For their family was dying out and would be no longer. But one day, things changed. That's our setting for the book of Luke. Something extraordinary is about to happen to Zechariah, verse 8. When, once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was observing, sorry, he was serving as a priest before God. He was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for burning of incense came, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. Let me tell you what's going on here. The priesthood was broken into 24 divisions, right? And there were thousands of priests across all of Israel. And the division would serve one at a time and they would come to Jerusalem and serve two weeks of the year, one week at a time, right? So twice a year you'd be on service. And so here is Zechariah, the division of Abijah is serving at the time. And when it came to sacrifices, there's a morning sacrifice and an afternoon sacrifice. Well, it's meant to be a night sacrifice, but it really happens in the afternoon. Right? Every day Israel starts their day with a sacrifice and they finish their day with a sacrifice. And one of the priests on duty would be selected by lot right, to go into the holy place in the temple and offer incense before the Lord. Now, this was a rare thing that you would get chosen, so much so that they did it essentially by lottery, right? And it would be the highest privilege of a priest's career that you would be chosen to offer the incense. So much so that if you got chosen once, you never got put back into the lottery system again. So you could only do it once in your life, right? And you would get chosen to go in and offer the incense, either morning or evening. And it just so happens... That Zachariah, our faithful priest, gets chosen this morning to go and offer the sacrifice. And something very significant is going to happen and very different to what normally happens when he goes in to do this. 
right? So he is going to go into the temple. He's there. He's before the altar of incense. He would put on um, incense onto these fresh coals. Um, and it was like a spicy kind of cinnamon scent that would come from these, these spices. And it would um, sort of fill the, the holy place with this aroma, this sweet-smelling aroma. And this was meant to indicate... Um, or be a, a symbol of the people's prayers rising to God as a sweet-smelling aroma, right? This is, this is what's happening here when Zechariah gets called up. And so he is giddy, right? It's like, my time has come. I get to go and offer the incense to God. Verse 11, he's doing this, right? Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and he was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear bear you a son, and you are to call him John. This is an incredible scene. There's Zechariah, and what he would have been doing most likely is prostrating himself down on his knees to the Holy of Holies where God's presence was said to dwell, and he was praying to God, as were a bunch of people outside the temple, right? And he's sitting there, he's lying there, he's praying, and he's down, and the next time he looks up, there is somebody else standing there that shouldn't be there, right? And it's an angel, to the right side of the altar, right? The right-hand side kind of has this indication of favor, right? So it's a good thing, right? But Zechariah is freaked out, as you would be, I would be. All of a sudden, somebody's there. You didn't know they were there, and they're just standing above you, right? And he tells Zechariah, your prayers have been answered. Now, the question is, what is he praying for, Right? And there's a lot of debate about what they're praying for, right? But one of the things that they're definitely pl- praying for, right, is that God would remember his covenant and show favor to Israel. The other thing I think that John has definitely prayed for is that he would have a kid, right? You would pray for that. If you're, you, you couldn't conceive and you wanted to have a child, you would pray for that, right? You would ask God. And uh, the reason I think that he has prayed for that is the angel says, your prayers have been heard, your wife will bear a son. I think he logically makes the connection that part of at least one of Zachariah's prayers was that he would be able to have a son. I don't think it's the only prayer that the angel is referring to. And so I think there's a combination here of a national answer to prayer and a personal And he's going to call him John. You must call him John. Because John means God has been gracious. And then the angel's going to tell us what John's going to do. Verse 14. He will be a joy and a delight to you. And many will rejoice because of his birth. We'll find out why in a sec. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never to take wine or other fermented drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. In the Old Testament, if you wanted to be wholly dedicated to the Lord, you would forgo certain things, right? And one of the ones that was very common was to forego alcohol of any kind. Um, You could do it for a short period or you could do it for your whole life. The other thing that, uh, another way that they would do it was to never cut their hair, right? 
um, and you would just let your hair grow. Uh, there was these things called the Nazarite vows. You can read about those in number six, where somebody says, I'm going to wholly dedicate myself to God. I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to cut my hair. Another thing was, I'm not going to go near a dead body. I'd be fine with that. Um, you know, these things that were saying, I'm going to be set apart and wholly dedicate myself to God. And here's John, and the angel says, he's not going to touch a drop of alcohol. He's not even going to have a grape, right? He's not even going to have a sultana. He, he will be dedicated to and have a special purpose uh, for the Lord. And he's going to be filled with the Holy Spirit before he's even born, right? That's, that's different. And what I think is going on here, and I could be wrong on this, but what I think is going on here, there is, there is this indication that John is going to be part of the Old Testament, but he's going to have a foot in the New Testament. And so he's going to have the old way of doing things, of being wholly dedicated to the Lord, but he's also going to foreshadow that there is something new coming that will indicate that you are one of God's people. It will be that you will be indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And so there is this connection between old and new in John himself. Right? He, is the, he is the end of the old covenant, and he's, he's starting to, to turn towards the new covenant that is going to come in Jesus Christ. Now, he's going to give him a task. <clears throat> the angel will tell, this is what, John, you're going to do. You're going to have a specific purpose. To understand this, we, just, we need to go back to Malachi, right? So if you've got your Bibles there, this is the last book of the Old Testament. So just turn back to Matthew, right? That's the start of the New Testament. Go back a couple more pages and you'll end up at the end of Malachi. Malachi is the last time there is a prophet speaking on behalf of God to the nation of Israel. From that point on, there's 400 years of silence where God doesn't speak through his prophets anymore. Right? And in the book of Malachi, it is really all about how Israel and Judah have profaned the name of the Lord. They have not stuck to the covenant that they were supposed to. And as a result, God is going to discipline them. Right? And again, like all the prophets, they are, they are calling the nation back to reform, to changing their ways, to returning to the covenant. And... Uh, Again, like all the prophets, there is always this hope in the prophets, right? There is always this hope because Israel can never get themselves together. And so the hope is always the one who was promised, right? Genesis 3, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, all, all those sorts of things. They, they give you these little snippets of the one who is to come who is going to make things right again. And so in chapter 4, right at the end of the book... You get, this, you get this little piece about the one who is to come. Verse 2, chapter 4, verse 2. But for you who revere my name, the Son of Righteousness, that's S-U-N, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its rays, and you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. See, there's this beautiful picture of there's one who's going to come, and he's going to... Be like the sun who rises in the morning and its rays bring warmth. That's what it's going to be like. That this darkness would be, it would come to an end. And there would be something who would, or someone who would bring light and warmth. And you're going to be, it's going to be like a calf coming out from being fed. Right? They're happy, they're joyous, they're just, 
they're on cloud nine. Um, and if you know anything about kids, which I've learned a little bit about this, this last year, it's like if they're hungry, they're not happy, right? And they will let you know. And if they're not happy, you're typically not happy. But once they're fed and they've got a full belly, it's like this is a different child. This is new life. And the Messiah is going to be like that. He's going to come. He's going to bring healing um, in, a, in a spiritual sense and eventually a physical sense. And it's going to be like you have been starving and now you are well fed. All right? That's what happens in Malachi. He also says, before this Messiah comes, I'm going to send a forerunner. Right? He didn't want to just... Rely, let Israel rely on the fact that you're just going to have to figure out who this guy is. I'm going to send someone in front of him to announce his coming so you will know this is the Messiah, the one that I have promised, right? And a forerunner was the idea that somebody, before the king would enter a city, somebody would come before and make sure everything's sorted, right? He would tell the people. They would level out the path. They would raise the low spots and they would lower the high spots so there was this smooth, like, carpet entrance for the king, to come in on. That was what the forerunner did. And in Malachi, it says there's going to be a forerunner before this. A few verses after that, verse uh, 5, chapter 4, verse 5. See, I'll send the prophet Elijah to you before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents. Or else I'll come and strike the land with total destruction, right? It's like, this is going to happen or you're going to get wiped out. There's going to be a forerunner. He's going to be like Elijah. And uh, Elijah was a prophet reigning during an evil time that called the people to repent, right? He's going to be like him and he's going to, he's going to reunite families in a way. So that's the background of Malachi, right? Keep that in mind. Come back to into the temple, Zechariah's there, the angel is giving him instruction about his son John, and he's going to tell him what John is going to do. So back to Luke, chapter 1 and verse 16. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go on before the Lord in, spirit and power, in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, when Zechariah heard this, I think that the hairs on the back of his neck stood up, all right? And, he's, and he's, his heart leapt a little bit because he would have known as a faithful priest the book of Malachi, right? And here's an angel telling him the exact prophecy is going to happen in his son that was prophesied back in Malachi 400 years later that everyone has been waiting for. John is going to be the fulfillment of the forerunner in Malachi, which means Messiah is not far behind. And John is going to call the people to prepare themselves and repent for the coming of the Lord. He's going to call people to get their heart ready. Because the king is on his way. Now Zechariah has uh, 
not his brightest moment. In verse 18, Zechariah asked the angel, angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm, a, I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. Right? They're old. He's like, how can I have a kid? How is this going to, going to, be happen- how is this going to happen? And um, if you jump down to verse 20, it's, it, the, the angel says, that you didn't believe me. So this isn't just a, I'm not sure how this plays out. This is like, I actually don't think I believe you in this, right? And what he's really asking for is, can I please have a sign? A sign. And a sign is a short-term evidence that a long-term promise will be fulfilled, right? So if you wanted to make prophecy about something that's going to happen a long time down the track, you might do something in the short term to confirm that that will take place, right? That's what a sign is. You want to see, I want to see something now that tells me that you'll be able to do this or this will happen down the track. And so the angel says this in verse 19, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now here's the sign. You want a sign? I'll give you a sign. You will be silent and not able to speak until this day happens because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Zechariah, you aren't going, that's the sign. You're not going to be able to speak until this baby is born. Nine long months. How many wives would love that to happen to their husbands today? Right? Nine months of freedom without them speaking. Let's finish this part of the story. Verse 21. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. This short-term evidence is a guarantee that what the angel said would indeed take place. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. And then she says this, verse 25, The Lord has done this for me. In these days, He has shown His favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Isn't that wonderful? You can imagine Elizabeth in her old age, looking down every day, thanking the Lord, smile on her face. The Lord has done this for me. He has shown me favor. If this were a Disney movie, what you might have is a dark, shadowy figure named Lucifer with eyes like coals. And a grimace across his face that is mean and ugly. And he'd come and he'd stand before a mirror. And he'd say to that mirror, mirror, mirror on the wall. 
Who's the mightiest of them all? And the mirror would have answered, You, O prince, are great and fierce in all lands, lands where men dwell. All minds and souls are bent and serve you, marching toward eternal hell. O dark one who brings forth so much anguish and pain, who drowns his victims with torment, like floods do from rain. Vast is your control, and the mightiest of all you are, but your power and control, I see now, will not go too far. For on this day in Judea, an angel of light has come to bring hope to a people, a nation, a number you cannot sum. A humble husband and wife, faithful to God and committed to above, have been chosen from their barrenness to bear a son they will love. A child is born. Though weak and small, no threatening does he bring. But in his cry, thy kingdom falls, for he heralds the coming king. He will level the path. And make way the road for the one you dread. That is the Messiah, the Savior, the Son of David, of whose blood will be shed. For the salvation of all who humbly come to him and ask forgiveness of sins through grace and mercy, which not even you can mask. Reform and return will be his cry. To the people who have gone astray. Many of Israel return to the Lord their God through Jesus Christ the way. And his might shall know no bounds. His love shall know no end. Who seeks your slaves as men do sheep. To ransom and to mend. O prince of the air, enjoy your throne. For one greater is coming. Who will dismantle, destroy and conquer all the effort of your cunning. You will be defeated and be thrown down from your place into the dust again, your weapon of shame, triumphed by grace. Today, to a priest of Abijah, Gabriel has lit the spark to enlighten the souls and awaken all those you have kept in the dark. It cannot be stopped Like a roaring forest fire that begins from an ember is the salvation of the world from the Lord Most High, whose promises he does remember. Friends, we are not so different from Israel back then. You see, once there was a dark time and there was nothing Israel could do to be liberated from their captivity but to throw themselves at the mercy of God and pray and ask that he would remember. And we once too were lost. Unable to get ourselves out of trouble 
And if we were to die and stand as sinners before a holy God, there would be nothing to absolve us of our sin and guilt if it were up to us. But God in his mercy remembered his covenant, his promise. He did not leave us in our mess, in our darkness, in our sin and in our shame. He sent one who was righteous, who would take our place, that we might take his. So that we can stand before a holy God and he can say, you are my son, you are my daughter. All this because God remembered. And in the silence and in the darkness, a new chapter began with a faithful old couple who would bear a son to clear the way for a king who's going to save the world. And our response should be that of Elizabeth. The Lord has done this for me. And in these days, he has shown me great favor. Would you pray with me? And then we're going to sing. Father, where would we be without you? God, I thank you for Christmas that as we go into this season, it is not really about the things that we tend to make it about. It's about this. It's about what you have done for us through Jesus Christ. And we can know all about you because of this story, what you're like. And this story tells us that you love us deeply. And so I pray that as we go through the Gospel of Luke, up to the birth of Jesus, that you would impact us in a way with your love that we have never experienced before because of the truth of your word found in the Scriptures. I pray now as we sing this song to you that our hearts would be authentically and genuinely moved by what we've looked at this morning. We thank you for Christ. What a difference he makes. The difference. It's in his name we pray these things by the power of the Spirit. Amen.